listening to Marist Connections, a podcast produced by the Marist Alumni Office, highlighting members of the Marist family, including our alumni, students, faculty, staff, coaches, and many more. Hi guys, I'm Amanda Benton, Assistant Director of Alumni Relations at Marist, and a graduate from the class of 2011. For the fourth season of Marist Connections, we're bringing you stories of alumni and faculty authors and their experiences with both writing and getting published. Today's guest is Stephen Garabedian, Associate Professor of History and Intern Coordinator at Marist. Steve is an Associate Professor of History, as I said, and he is the Intern Coordinator for History, Public History, and American Studies. He holds a PhD in American Studies from the University of Minnesota and is a historian of the 20th century of the United States, specializing in race, music, and radicalism. Hey, Steve. Hi there. Yeah, yes, thank you. Thanks. Great to be involved. Yeah, wonderful. So his book, A Sound History, Lawrence Gellert, Black Musical Protest and White Denial, traces the rise and fall of Lawrence Gellert, a little known left-wing independent music collector, as it explores changing perceptions of African-American musical resistance throughout the 20th century. Lawrence Gellert has long been a mysterious figure in American folk and blues studies. He was an independent music collector without formal training, credentials, or affiliation. At a time of institutionalized suppression, he worked to introduce white audiences to a tradition of Black musical protest that had been denied and overlooked by prior white collectors. A Sound History digs into Gellert's life, his work collecting songs in the Jim Crow South, and the controversy surrounding both. Thank you again for joining us, Steve. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Of course. So before we jump into your book, um, you know, it's been trying times this last year, year and a half. How are you dealing with the pandemic? Uh, we are doing fine. Um, and I'm happy to say that within my circle of friends and family, everyone has remained healthy and everyone is vaccinated at this point. Um, um, so we've gone through uh, the grueling ups and downs uh, emotionally, but we have not um, we've luckily been spared um, the more um, really trying medical um, scares and emergencies. And we haven't had any medical tragedies in my immediate circle. That's good. It's been That's a really good. hard time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So many of our listeners probably have never heard of Lawrence Gellert. Can you give us a little bit more info on who he was, his impact on music, his impact on culture? Sure. Um, well, we're talking about somebody whose key um, years of activity were um, in terms of um, public attention, were the 1930s into the 1960s. Um, he was born in 1898, and he um, disappeared um, in 1979. Um, so presumably he passed quite a while ago, but there is no record um, of his death. And um, he disappeared under mysterious circumstances from uh, New York City in, in 1979. Um, people who uh, are unaware of Lawrence Gellert are common, um, but uh, people who are aware of John and Alan Lomax and the Archive of American Folk Song at the Library of Congress are uh, fairly widespread and common. And so if you're aware of the Lomaxes and field recordings that were um, compiled um, as part of a massive documentary effort um, for the Archive of American Folk Song at the Library of Congress, then you would have a basic frame of reference for understanding Lawrence Gellert. Lawrence Gellert worked um, in the same field of endeavor. Um, he was like the Lomaxes, um, a white outsider to the South 
who took an interest in, um, in this case, he wasn't interested in the full span of American folk music. He was interested particularly in black Southern folk music. But um, like the Lomaxes, he documented it in writing and on early um, field recording discs. And um, so there's a real common ground there. Uh, and, and Lawrence Gellert was in between the ages of John and Alan Lomax. So he falls right in between as a contemporary. Um, the Lomaxes were collecting in the 30s. Gellert had been collecting in the 20s and was at a peak of activity in the 1930s. They may have traveled some of the same roads and visited some of the same singer informants um, who in many cases were in um, Southern uh, penal institutions and their names weren't even recorded. Um, um, so Gellert fits uh, within this peer group in many ways. And the one way that he is different is that unlike the Lomaxes, he had no um, specific training um, he had no um, formal affiliation of any kind. So he was an independent operating on his own. Um, he was a self-taught person who was taking an interest, not so much in preservation, but, um, but political agitation. He was collecting black protest music, as he said, to advance the cause of racial justice. That's really cool. Um, so, how did you find out about Lawrence Gellert? Obviously there's hundreds of individuals who played a large impact on music, especially in the United States with its relation to race, politics, protest, and so many other huge you know, social norms. Um, so how did you decide to focus on Lawrence Gellert, write a book about him? Well, um, I followed a path in some ways that was similar to that um, of Lawrence Gellert. I was um, a, um, a white American disillusioned and alienated from uh, mainstream US culture and values. Um, and as part of a search for musical meaning, I discovered in high school and, um, and then this continued through college, different black music tradition that I found fascinating and inspiring. At the same time that I was um, drawing inspiration from Black history. Um, and this is uh, the trajectory of Lawrence Gellert as well. Lawrence Gellert um, discovered music collecting um, because of an awakening sense of racial injustice in the United States and attention to Black history. He did not go south to collect music. He went south for personal reasons. Um, and he stumbled, as he said, onto black music and black musical protest. Um, and uh, that interest in African-American musical tradition, um, specifically blues music, um, early blues music, um, is something that I wrote about in college, for instance, um, as an American studies um, student. Um, and particularly my interest all along was um, the music, but also the way that white researchers had represented the music and the musicians. Um, so I had a dual interest always in the music and the representation of the music. And so that continued into my graduate years. And in uh, my general reading, um, I stumbled across the name Lawrence Gellert quite a few times, but it was always just a footnote or a mention in passing. And um, as I became more interested um, in this uh, figure who collected 
um, blues music, some folks said, that had protest lyrics. That was fascinating because the conventional wisdom among blues scholars was that blues was apolitical. It was uh, not about racial politics, but the battle of the sexes is, was the, uh, the common line about the blues. Um, I always found that um, interesting and a little bit surprising. Um, and here was uh, a collector who supposedly had collected a parallel um, repertoire of, of uh, all kinds of black music, including blues, where instead of the mistreater being a lover, the mistreater was the white captain or the white boss. Sometimes the same song um, with almost identical lyrics with just certain words replaced so that it was racial protest rather than uh, romantic heartbreak or romantic protest. Um, and so seeing that name, it wasn't long before I realized that Gellert's archive was um, available for researchers at a public institution, Indiana University in Bloomington at the Archives of Traditional Music. And you know, like any good graduate student, I thought, well, surely someone's been there and done this. And it seemed that no one had. So I went in 1999 for the first time to Indiana and went through the full collection and the papers. And ever since then, whenever you know it's clear that Gellert is this mysterious figure, I'm always highlighting to folks that he's been hiding in plain sight all along and the archive has been hiding in plain sight all along. And it's interesting that folks weren't pursuing this. Wow, that's awesome. So you mentioned always having an interest kind of in this history and this music. Did that start as a kid? Was it something you always knew you wanted to go into this kind of research, history, music, protest? Or was that kind of something you found as you became a history major and started going that route? Well, I've always, uh, music and history always made, uh, you know, the hair stand up uh, on my arm and gave me goosebumps. I always had, um, for whatever reason, um, uh, however we are hardwired, um, I had an innate passion for history and music. Um, and uh, I was a musician from a young age and um, I was uh, a music lover from a young age. And um, I, uh, I think in college, uh, even though I was playing music with people um, pretty seriously, I don't think I was courageous enough to become a musician. So I thought maybe I'll become a teacher. <laughs> um, and as uh, and, and graduate school is hardly like the easy road. So there were certainly many times in graduate school or after when I was trying to find employment where I thought, why didn't I just become a musician? Um, but uh, the obvious point is, well, maybe I wasn't good enough. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the music and the history were always dual passions. Um, and so I was excited uh, as an undergraduate at the University of California at Santa Cruz in American Studies when I realized that I could customize um, a field of study for my senior um, project that would um, envelop both worlds together. Um, and this is the kind of thing that I'm encouraging. You know, I like to oversee honors projects at Marist and, um, and oversee um, imaginative projects like this at, at Marist as well for students. That's great. You also mentioned that the archive of Gellert's work is available. Um, would you be able to play a clip or two for us? Sure, sure. Um, 
My publisher, the University of Massachusetts Press, in collaboration with the Archives of Traditional Music, uh, worked with me to put a digital supplement uh, online that's open access. So you don't have to buy the book. You don't even have to read the book um, to, to go to this website and investigate this material. And uh, at this uh, supplement, people could find it from a simple Google search, the Garabedian, a sound history, online supplement or digital supplement. You can find portions from my book uh, that uh, are provided as annotation for select field recordings of note and interest. Um, and I'll just play one. Uh, it's something uh, that I highlight right at the beginning of the book, um, a field recording. Uh, it's three fragments actually of, uh, of the same song collected at different times by Gellert. Um, these recordings are from the 1930s. Even though he was collecting in the 20s, that material is of such poor quality that this kind of material, which is much more accessible for listeners, um, is all from the 1930s where he had better equipment. Gotcha. Um, and these are three fragments in one sound file of a song that he titled, How Long Brethren. And uh, it follows the melody of what became a standard blues song, How Long Blues or How Long How Long Blues. Um, so this follows the same melody with a very different set of lyrics. And how long is my people that to weep? How long, brother in how long? How long, how long, brother in how long is my people that to worry anymore? How long, brother in how long? White folks ain't Jesus, he's just a man taking discus out of poor man. All right, let's stop from the gate. How long, baby, how long has that evening? How long has that train Thank you. That's, you know, it's wonderful to find these like little pieces of history that, you know, often get so buried or covered. Um, yeah. The title of your book includes Black Musical Protest as part of the title. So you played us this clip, but in general, like what sort of songs does this include and what role would that have played in the early 1920s, 1930s, and even, you know, up through the 60s and 70s? Um, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, an important question. Um, you know, what was the value of this music making? Um, who was the intended audience? Um, and uh, some of these questions then became sources of tension and controversy ultimately um, in the post-World War II period. Um, but a song like this Gellert collected as listeners um, can, can, um, can hear from a uh, from an amateur. You know, these are these are non-professionals. Um, some of them are quite good, and some of them are not so good. But they are folks who um, uh, either Gellert has been tipped off about, or have come to him um, either in a local community in the South, or if he visited uh, a prison, somebody might say, "Oh, you got to go talk to so and so." You know, he knows a whole bunch of songs. And so he was collecting songs that he felt expressed what was otherwise um, unvoiced. 
um, within the black community under Jim Crow, that, uh, that um, sentiments that could not be aired publicly, um, he was trying to collect through song. And um, he uh, said that he developed a, a reputation as a safe white man, as uh, what we would say in the 21st century, an ally um, across the color line in the South. And he described his process for gaining trust. Um, um, number one, he would, uh, if he visited a prison, he would say he doesn't want any prison officials around at all. Just leave me alone in the cell block. Um, number two, uh, if he said, you know, here's the kinds of songs I'm looking for, and they looked at him funny, <laughs> we don't know those songs, or we're not prepared to share those songs, he would start singing lines from some, some songs he'd collected previously. And uh, the response might be, um, oh, wow, where'd you get that? And then he would begin to elicit songs from them as he gained trust. He also, in, uh, in the local community where, he, where it was like his base of operations in North Carolina, Tryon, um, he would trade favors with people, uh, some sort of barter <laughs> where goods were exchanged and they'd sing him a song um, and he'd collect it that way. I also have a letter that I found um, in the archives at Indiana, where it's clear that he had collected from a community in Alabama um, and uh, he had then sent clothing. And this person was thanking him for the clothing and asking how, um, how his wife was. He was never married. So this was clearly a romantic partner that this person identified as his wife. Um, and, uh, you know, promising more songs in the future. Um, so it was an important um, part of the story to be suspicious, to scrutinize very carefully Gellert's own explanations of how he did the work he did. Because in the post-war period, detractors said, well, nobody else got songs like that. He must have made these up. And so I tried to, as much as possible, from his own interviews and from his descriptions in, in, in um, print articles and in his books, piece together how he may have gained trust in these very um, adverse conditions. And he collected songs which are um, really quite striking, you know, if you consider the context. Um, so how long, um, how long must my people weep and mourn? How long, how long, brethren, how long? Um, white folks St. Jesus, he's just a man. Uh, sometimes it's taking muffins, sometimes it's stealing biscuits from a poor man's hand. Um, he collected a song called Sisterin and Brethren, Sister and brethren, stop fooling with prey. When black folks are looking up or lifted, white uh, God's turning away. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> um, but uh, the idea there was that he said he collected that in a community where there had been a lynching, and the um, um, the sentiment within the community is um, we need to take action. We can't be looking for answers in the afterlife or just simply uh, finding consolation in the afterlife and going forward with this oppression. He collected songs that sometimes um, had lines of direct retaliation that were being threatened. Um, a song like Work Ox um, ended with the line, well, I ain't gonna be your old work ox no more. Um, I've done my due, ain't gonna work no more. Um, these are, this crept into blues uh, commercial recording as well. But, um, in this uh, version, it's directed at a white oppressor. And the last line is, you can never tell what your old work ox is going to do. Um, so 
Um, these are just random samplings drawn from a, a broader collection. But I will stress that as, as many striking sets of lyrics um, as there are in the Gellert collection, there are um, um, many, 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 um, what we would say are non-protest lyrics. Um, and that's important for those folks who, who um, in the 50s and 60s said, well, this stuff must be fake because how could he have gotten all protest songs and nothing else? It's too suspicious. It's too singular an archive. In fact, the archive has a lot of material that um, is recognizable and familiar in other collections. Gellert always talked that down and talked up the protest content. And this was actually something that backfired. You know, this ended up being uh, something that put a target on his back. That's fascinating. Um, is that what you also meant by white denial in the title of your book? That idea that this controversy surrounding what was protest song and what wasn't, is that what that relates to or is that referencing something else? Um, absolutely, that's in part um, what I'm, what I'm um, addressing. First off, I'm, I'm using language that is suited to our time with respect to white racial denial. Um, a sense of obliviousness to the depth and reality of, uh, in this case, black oppression in the United States. Um, and so there was a pervasive collective denial in um, US dominant culture of the reality of black suffering and the reality of black resistance. Um, so, you know, it may be surprising um, for uh, the average person who hasn't thought through these things, but with every um, crescendo of resistance in the United States, um, the response in dominant society has very often been surprise and shock, as if to say, I didn't know things were that bad. Um, um, and this was happening at the height of the civil rights movement. <laughs> um, you know, just before the March on Washington in 1963, national polls indicated that a majority of white Americans felt like the civil rights movement had achieved its goals and was on the verge of going too far. Um, this is before the March on Washington. This is before the uh, Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65. Um, and in the 30s, people um, were shocked at um, episodes of lynching and racial violence and black resistance. Um, and the, it was the same refrain. We thought that was a thing of the past. We didn't know it was that bad still. Um, even if the evidence is plainly in front of everybody. So I'm talking about it in terms of our modern vocabulary of white racial denial. Um, and I'm also using language that comes from a sociologist named Stanley Cohen, who wrote a book called States of Denial, which is, is about, um, individual psychologies, but also the collective psychology of societies around the world, the way in which um, trauma is uh, pushed away or um, um, confrontational realities are pushed away from our awareness. So he calls it a state of knowing and not knowing. He doesn't even call it, you know, necessarily lying, right? And so in part, that focuses attention in part of the book on other white collectors who um, seem to be some of the most adamant critics of Lawrence Gellert, claiming that he must have fabricated his material. 
um, um, white collectors that preceded him and white collectors who came after. And I am indicating that, um, yeah, we could chalk it up to simple uh, competitiveness, but I think it's deeper than that. And that's necessary, you know, I don't have hard evidence for that. So that's not even a line of, of inquiry that I find particularly revealing in any larger significance. What I think is more interesting is the ways in which collectors stumbled onto some of the same material, but did not um, investigate further um, and did not highlight it in their collections. The Lomaxes, for instance, collected lyrics that had protest content, and then sometimes they would put those song lyrics in a section of reels in their books. So these are dance tunes. Howard Odom, who preceded um, uh, um, Lawrence Gellert, collected what he called songs about the white man. And he said, there are a good number of songs about the white man. This might be uh, you know, a productive avenue for future research, but he never did. And those songs he, he usually saw as humorous and harmless and trivial, sometimes nonsense. Like, oh, they just put lyrics together that sounded funny. So there was a way in which um, these realities were being minimized um, or sidelined in the consciousness of some of these white collectors. So we fast forward to now almost a century after some of this music collection. What do you hope that your readers or even your students in class can take away from learning about people like Lawrence Gellert, songs of protest and black resistance and other similar conversations? Um, well, you know, my, uh, one of my uh, points of focus as a teacher and as a researcher um, is domination and resistance in U.S. history. Um, and so as a story of resistance, I think this is an important um, picture of the past. Um, it's not a biography of Lawrence Gellert. It's, um, it's a cultural history with elements of his um, life and work at the center but it is more broadly about um, resistance in what we refer to as the old left, the period of uh, left-wing activity in the United States in the 1930s and 40s, and then resistance in the 1950s and 60s with another generation, what ultimately is called the new left. Um, and this, this picture I try to, um, to uh, paint shows the importance of cross-racial alliances, the importance of alliances across lines of social division, the importance of allies. And it also shows the contradictions and, and um, risks that bear constant scrutiny. Um, yeah, I think it's also very important that it's a story of um, possibilities and contradictions when it comes to broad-based social movements for change. Um, you know, Gellert himself, is not depicted as a hero figure in this book. Um, he's meant to be understood as somebody who's been unfairly misrepresented and maligned, but at the same time, um, I have no interest in elevating him um, to uh, some sort of heroic status. He projected uh, in ways that um, some of his peers did in the white, um, in, the, in his peer group among white music collectors. He projected his own associations onto the African-American informants he collected from. He, um, he uh, you know, instead of um, seeing African-American people as um, romantic, exotic primitives, 
like some of his peers, he saw them as revolutionaries, um, innate revolutionaries. Um, and that's a different kind of typing in and of itself. Um, so I tried to make a nuanced story um, that um, can hopefully encourage us to be nuanced and discerning in efforts, uh, collective efforts for change today. Um, so now that you've gotten published, do you have advice for others who might want to write a book or who are just getting into that? Um, I remember reading the question uh, before we talked and thinking about it. <laughs> and um, um, it's a long road. Um, it really is a long road, um, but it can be very rewarding. Um, and so it takes uh, endurance. Um, that's for sure. Um, and it takes a flexibility, no question. I mean, I, I was working with the previous publisher um, long before UMass. Um, I was signed with a contract to um, publish a book on Lawrence Gellert with um, University of Pennsylvania. And um, anyone who's writing a book knows that they need to be true to their vision. I mean, the book is, you know, has to have the integrity of their heart and mind in it. At the same time, you have to be flexible. And, um, and in a case like this, it, we were working together, but it just, the, the vision was going in different directions. So that contract ended and I continued with no immediate prospects for anything. I was just committed to the project, um, continued to research and write about um, Lawrence Gellert. And then uh, I was approached by, um, by Massachusetts. So if you're fascinated by it, you got to stick with it, you know, even just for uh, the sake of posterity, you know, that uh, history needs to be uh, recorded, documented, and uh, promoted uh, for its own sake, even without any um, commercial um, outcome necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. So before we close, would you mind reading us a short excerpt from A Sound History? Sure. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Uh, I thought I would choose uh, a few paragraphs from chapter one of the book. Um, I call this chapter, The Roads to Perdition. And it comes from a Lawrence Gellert quotation. Lawrence Gellert was a colorful character and um, his writing and speaking was um, colorful. So uh, the uh, quotation that opens the chapter uh, and uh, from which I draw the title uh, from Lawrence Gellert is, I presume there are as many ways to become a Negro folk song collector as there are roads to perdition. Lawrence Gellert was a maverick with a mission in 1936. An autodidact and self-styled Bohemian radical, he had been living and working in the South, documenting black vernacular protest in written transcription and on sound recordings for some 10, 10 years. The youngest brother of prominent radical artist, Hugo Gellert, Lawrence was an active proponent of the communist movement of the era. Since 1930, he had contributed articles of song lyrics and contextual commentary culled from his fieldwork to such left-wing periodicals as New Masses and the short-lived Music Vanguard. With his first book, Negro Songs of Protest, published in 1936, and a second published in 1939, Gellert achieved considerable acclaim Time Magazine profiled him approvingly. The New York Times credited the collector for unearthing a quote, new genre of black music dealing with the realities of Negro life. 
The NAACP Oregon, the crisis, also included an approving notice of Negro songs of protest. Born September 14, 1898 in Budapest, Lawrence Gellert was the fifth of six children, five sons and one daughter, in a working class Jewish Hungarian family. The original surname was Grunbaum, but in the process of emigration and resettlement in the United States, it was changed to Greenbaum and ultimately Gellert. In 1905, Lawrence's father, Adolf, emigrated to New York. The following year, he brought his wife, Catherine, and children to join him. In the early 1920s, Gellert relocated from the winter of New York to the temperate climate of Tryon, North Carolina, located approximately 40 miles south of Asheville and very near the state's southern border. He had not gone south in search of music. Rather, his interests were rest and seclusion. Suffering under the stultifying pressures of family, career, and his own unfulfilled restless ambition, Gellert was ailing physically and by his own telling had succumbed to a nervous breakdown. He had wanted to be an actor, but instead found himself as he remembered it to an interviewer working quote, seven days, 80 to 90 hours a week as a reporter at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Additionally, it seemed he chafed under the shadow of his famous older brother, already an artist of renown among the left intelligentsia of New York. Hugo by that time was a big shot, you know? Oh Christ, he was all over the place, Lawrence explained. I didn't know what was bothering me. I was known as this guy's kid brother, and then I worked hard on this goddamn newspaper. In the end, Gellert quit everything, as he said, and headed out to make a new life on the stake of what he called his two wealthy businessman brothers, Ted and Otto. He resettled 700 miles south in Tryon. In his scattered, Interviews and writings, Gellert repeatedly cited 1922 as his date of arrival in the town. Awesome, thank you. And th Steve, thank you for sharing a portion of your writing with us, for taking the time out of your schedule to chat with us about a sound history, Lawrence Gellert, Black Musical Protest and White Denial. And for those listening, we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our series highlighting Red Fox authors. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep in touch and know every time we post a new episode of Marist Connections. We'll continue to bring you conversations with alumni as well as students, faculty, staff, coaches, and others essentials to the, essential to the Marist community. If you have suggestions for future podcast themes or guests, please email us at maristalumni at marist.edu. We also sure to check out Marist Alumni on Facebook or official Marist Alumni on Instagram. And we hope everyone has a great day. Thank you very much.